Thank you for standing by. Welcome to Manager 2 Licensee Spring Call 2012 Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. Later, there will be opportunity for questions and comments. Instructions will be given at that time. As a reminder, this conference call is being recorded. Now I would like to turn the call over to our host, Mark Horstman. Mark, please go ahead. Thanks, RJ. Hi, everybody. Glad you're with us. We're going to do this call a little bit differently for two reasons. Um, I think Mike's with us, but I'm going to be very, I'm going to give a very brief introduction because we've got 20 questions to get to. Um, and uh, also, um, we're going to try something a little bit different. Um, uh, if you have a follow-up question to something that I say during the call, um, we'll have limited ability at the end of the call to address those. It depends on whether or not I get through all 20 questions, but I'll do my best because um, we only have an hour. And, and the email address we're going to use is Danny's email address, D-A-N-I, Delta Alpha November India at manager-tools.com. If you have a question about this call and the questions and answers on this call, um, then send an email to Danny, and at the end, if there are some emails, uh, I'll try to answer them if we have time. Um, we, we've gotten some feedback that you want it to be more interactive. We try to balance interactivity with me getting as many questions answered as possible. It takes me about 10 hours to get ready for these things, so we're going to do our best. All right, here we go. First question is from Jeffrey. By the way, all the questions are anonymized. I do know who a couple of the questioners are, um, simply because I needed more information from them. Um, but I'm going to use the, the uh, names at the top of the, call, at the, top of the, uh, the deck. And the um, first question is from Jeffrey. Have we ever considered a podcast called Executive Tools? Oh, no, Jeffrey. We never have. Sorry. <laughs> You're going to have to read a book. There, there are lots of books about being a good executive. <laughs> this is the funniest question of the lot. Um, of course we have, yeah. And we've presented leader tools as well. And you can make a case about leader tools versus manager tools, and we won't have that discussion right now. Part of the problem with executive tools is actionables, which we think are really important because we think that's what people want rather than discussion or ideas or theory, aren't as easy as for executive roles as they are. They're much easier for managers than they are for executives. Look, guys, executive life is about turning uncertainty, the outside world, the, the world of competitors and customers, into certainty for the organization to act upon. That's very different from management, which is about turning certainty or, or some proxy thereof into performance. It's, executive tools is much more about questions than it is about answers. Now, we know the questions. Well, well, we have a theory, anyway, about what we think the questions ought to be after years and years of working with executives. Um, now, we also think, too, that if every executive got their management stuff right, a heck of a lot of stuff would be a heck of a lot easier so we obviously feel very strongly that manager tools is for executives, too. And I, we've had somebody at our recent conference who told us, yeah, it's really hard to teach VPs to be managers because they just think it's beneath them. So, well, yeah, <laughs> it won't be beneath them when I chop them off of the knees. Um, you're not that important if you think you don't have to manage people just because now you're an executive. Uh, all that said, Jeffrey, yes, Mike and I have every intention of adding a leader tool slash executive tools podcast or some sort of delivery if we can find the bandwidth. We have a lot to say. We'd love to help. Uh, and what I've learned is let's not try to do too much. Let's make sure the stuff we do is really good. And I think that's why most of you are on the call with us. Um, look, guys, the reason my book hasn't come out until now, we were worried about the ability to handle the growth that may come from a book. Uh, and we think more like Procter and Gamble does than we do like an Internet startup, even though we're in the social media slash technology world. We, you know, we're not trying to push everything out the door. We want to be relevant in 100 years, and that means being a little bit careful. But, yes, um, and sorry for the joke. Okay, next question. Irving, uh, I, I, I take it from – if I understood correctly, this has already happened, and I'm sorry to hear that things didn't go well. Um, Irving, it sounds to me like you work for a jerk who believed that things believed things that weren't true, and that he or he had a director who was willing to be unethical to get what he or she wanted. Um, sometimes it doesn't matter what you do; you're going to get screwed. It's just that simple. I got fired for doing exactly what was asked of me. Um, you know, it's funny. Danny and Wendy and I have all been fired. Um, there are bad bosses everywhere, and that's why we have manager tools. And this is an example of 
bad example of not trying to manage your boss, right? You, you can't do it. it you, you wouldn't have worked here. Your boss was unethical to believe the things that were said and so on. Um, Wendy bought a book recently from Amazon. Somebody got paid to write it and, and hoped that millions of people read it, which said one should know one's boss's schedule so you'd know when he was out of the office for those days when you want to go through his files and shred the ones that paint you in a bad light. I vote for thumb screws. Um, Look, try to remember that idiocy is what happens outside of you. Um, my advice about remaining positive in the face of idiocy is it's not your idiocy. You don't have to internalize it. Remember my story about the elevator and the umbrella. You get poked with an umbrella, but you get mad. If you get mad about being poked with an umbrella, you get mad all by yourself. Your, your, part of your professional maturity includes emotional maturity, and emotional maturity includes taking responsibility. That's where the word responsibility comes from, able to choose our response. Um, uh, includes responsibility for one's emotions and for maintaining them. Um, and by the way, we don't say that because we're perfect at it. We struggle with it too. And I would just say don't allow your positiveness to be affected by what other people do, even your boss who controls, you know, controls your addiction to food, food, and shelter indirectly. As Jimmy Buffett says, carry your weather with you, right? Uh, you know, I've been rich and I've been poor and happy is better. And you got screwed. And, and you're going to get screwed in life. It's going to happen. It's happened to me. It's happened to a lot of my friends. And the real test of character is not what you take into a difficult situation, but what you come out of it with. And hold your head up, and if you believe you're doing the right things, and know that you were sandwiched by two people who ought to be shot. Um, and there's nothing more we can do. And, and, and the real test of whether or not you believe you're doing the right thing is if you would be put in another situation and you would do the same thing again. Always strive to be fired for the things that you're proud of. Worst thing in the world, right, is to be fired because you were doing something you didn't believe in. It's like faking being who you are in an interview and then not getting the job. That would suck. That's part of uh, horseman's wager, right? Don't do that. So you probably did the right thing. And they were probably assholes. And sorry, I know I shouldn't say those kind of things, but <laughs> that kind of word is reserved for people like this. So I'm sorry. Um, if you want to talk further, if you need cheering up, send me a mail. I'll be happy to chat with you. Uh, this next question is really good. Irving asked, as a job seeker, how do you ensure you're implying and accepting an offer from a well-managed organization? <sighs> and we need a bunch of podcasts here. Wendy and I spent a couple hours today working on a strategy for all the career tool stuff we have to say, and I think we're gonna. I think we decided we're gonna clone Wendy. So Mike is gonna figure out how to clone people. Um, look, here's what I would do in this situation. Uh, I wouldn't interview, but understand that that's a little bit of hyperbole there. I wouldn't interview at any company that a I didn't revere, and b know lots of people at. Um, and so usually when I say revere, that reverence would have come from detailed knowledge of history and performance and values. The stuff that isn't available on the Internet, and there are a lot of young people today, I don't know who this person is, who asked, but I, you know, I recently heard that some, some journalism students said, oh, you wouldn't have to do investigative reporting in today's world because everything's on the Internet. Well, no, it's really not. But the stuff that isn't available on the Internet about companies, particularly smaller companies and private companies, is available. It's just not available easily. You may have to actually talk to people. You need friends in lots of places to do a good search. And a good search is not getting a job. It's getting the job you want at the place you want. You need to stay in touch with people and glean information from their conversations with you. Um, this also means you need to ask questions about where they work and pay attention to their answers and add it to your growing sense of, is that really a good place, even though they say they like it, or is this place not as good as people say? Um, I've had a quote in my back pocket for a long time, and it goes like this. It's okay to be lazy as long as you're prepared to take whatever the world gives you free of charge. And it's also okay to be picky if you're willing to work for the things that you want. But picky and lazy do not mix. And I think that's a huge problem among dog seekers, the, the lack of hard work beforehand, which people don't seem to realize, contributes to poor outcomes. The way you get a great job with a great company is you learn what great companies are, and you only interview with those great companies because 
you have friends there because you decided what the companies were that you really could align yourself with, and then you took it took it under your uh, as a mission to say, I'm going to get to know people there. And boy, I don't work there now, so I have to go talk to other people that work there, and I have to go to conferences and so on, um, and 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 run into people and introduce myself in a polite way. I, I'll tell you, I, I'm, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but I, I talk to a lot of people in the technology world. Um, some of them go to conferences. A lot of sales and marketing people go to conferences and rub shoulders with other people. But I talk to a lot of people in the technology world say, I don't know anybody, and they can't get a good job. It's like being told, you're really hard on your kids, and you have the most well-behaved kids in the world. Lady, those things aren't unrelated, right? You don't know anybody, and you can't get a good job? Well, that's how you get a good job is you know people. Um, so it's not nearly as much about accepting an offer, even though, again, I think this is a great question, as it is about not interviewing at a place that you don't know enough about beforehand to be excited about. Now, if you do interview someplace you're not thrilled about, you wait until you get the offer, and then you start asking questions. Please understand, I don't know how this is not known. And I admit, you know, this is this is a, a, a case of... Uh, 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 what's the academic creep? I, I cannot believe the number of people who don't understand there's a difference between the types of questions you ask before you get an offer and after you get an offer. Um, if you ask the kind of questions about, is this a good place to work and so on, I'd kick you out so, of the interview so fast, you'd never even know you got on the plane for an interview. But look, if you get to the point where you're not certain, and that should be a sign, maybe this place isn't right, you, you ask questions. What's your management style? What are your near-term plans for the firm? What excites you about the next three to five years here business-wise? What kind of relationship do you have with the executive team? How do you feel about the firm? How long have you been here? What do you love? What do you not love? And don't just ask about any one individual. You don't want to ask about any one individual. Gee, I met this guy, Robert. Is he a good guy or not? That's dumb. Now, look, these are delicate questions. You have to introduce them gently along the lines of, I hope you don't mind. I like to ask some bigger picture questions to make sure I'm making the right decision. I found that, that people are a big part of what makes a place great to work at. Um, and, of course, this is in keeping with our guidance on pre-offer questions to share why you're asking something. And the smaller the company, the more important these questions are because there's less inertia, and execs can make more of a difference in people's lives, and there's less available information. Now, all that said, you may get a bunch of fluff in your answer, in their answer to you. It's, it's impossible for me today to teach you how to evaluate these answers, but we'll put out podcasts on it. But if you don't get specifics, that's always a worry. It's either because it's condescending or it's a dodge. Um, I, yeah, there are some people who are stupid enough to think that you're not entitled to know that, but at that point, they're not recruiting, are they? Uh, it amazes me that somebody would make an offer and then not recruit you. I, well, again, I shouldn't be amazed. Um, uh, so, um, he, it always amazes me that companies expect to be able to dig through your background but be above that themselves. Obviously, there are exceptions in the world. The first week Wendy came to work here, the company, our, our company, Manager Tools, had a week where we spent more money than we made. And so the company looked to have lost money, I think like $30,000. But it was just one week, right? I think the next week we made like eighty thousand um, dollars, and and she seemed surprised. Right? I had a direct spouse once after a month on the job, asked how much my company was worth, and then suggest they might buy the firm. Right? Why did why did why wouldn't somebody ask that question before they got the offer? So you have to ask questions, and and. The definition of an offer is when control passes to you, okay? And when you're in control, you have the opportunity to find out, is this place a place I really want to work? But that is the last hope, and really the work is done well in advance. Okay? Now, I'm not suggesting that you do the, oh, my God, Apple's the greatest company in the world. I want to go to work there. I have myopia for Apple. No, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting you decide what kind of company you want to go to work for and then learn about companies. And that means probably reading a lot more broadly. Um, and, and there's one other thing worth, worth mentioning here, and that's naturally occurring opacity. You can't know everything. Um, 
I don't know who these folks are that that uh, that did what you say they did in the in the question. Um, and I have to know more about what they said. But I hope you stood up for the executives at your firm that your directs were busy carving up. We as managers have an obligation to defend much of the uncertainties and frustrations coming out of the leadership of our firm. We have to stand with the firm. Uh, we cover this, by the way, in a cast we have on professional subordination. And next time they say it, tell them, that's why you're here, to help me make it better. <laughs> Stick around. This is, you're part of a great new future. Um, and I and I admit freely, there's a little bit of cynicism in me, because a junior person who says, "Oh, the senior people don't know what they're talking about," they've probably never been senior people, and senior people are dealing with a lot of uncertainty, and sometimes it looks like they're uncertain because that's the appropriate emotional response to a lot of uncertainty is to feel uncertain. Okay, next. How do you get people to care about work? <laughs> I have an answer. It'll be a billion dollars. Um, I'm sorry to hear you're struggling, though. It doesn't sound like fun. Um, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be snarky with my answer and say, give me liberty or give me death, which is give me feedback or give me severance. I, I, look, you don't instill professionalism. You can't get people to care about their work. And, and by the way, communities do not breed apathy. Okay. So my answer is lead by example. I know the person who asked this question, like, no, no, ours does. Okay. Communities don't. People do. Uh, and, yeah, if one of, the, one of your cowork, one of your associates, one of your directs has a crummy attitude and he hangs out with a bunch of people who have crummy attitudes and don't believe the world's ever going to get better and hate everybody in the world and it's, life is miserable and so on, then, yeah, that person is going to come to work and be less great than somebody who goes home and is in a supportive environment who tell them, go, ahead, go work hard and get ahead and, and serve the world. And, and the way you serve the world is to do good work every day and treat other people with respect and dignity. Um, but look, for you, what do you do? You lead by example, and you give lots of feedback, tons of feedback. Get rid of those people who clearly won't ever get it. If they're not any good, going through a lot of people who aren't any good is not that big a deal. Okay? And, and look, if, if, if they won't, ever get it, if you're certain they won't ever get it, fire them after they prove unwilling to make changes. And anybody who, who proves to you that they're willing to move or try to move in the right direction, keep them and praise them for the smallest improvement and give them lots of positive feedback. Build a relationship with them, then start asking for greatness. Be candid about your desire for greatness. Let people self-select out of interviewing with you and say, look, it's hard to get hired by us, but we take care of people. Um, I also think that a lot of times low-level managers don't realize they have a lot of flexibility when you hire somebody. If you think somebody's good and you want to send them a message that you're going to set high standards but you're also going to give them, give them high standards in return of management, gosh, give them the day off on Friday. Say, take the, take the day off on Friday. Go. Get out of here. You deserved it. You worked hard this week. Thank you. That's what you get for working hard here. Let the word get out that you're weird. You're not a normal manager. Attract other people who are like you. You know, it's corny, but that which you are seeking is seeking you. And I would say start developing your network. Look for any hint of greatness. I almost hired a waitress here in Fredericksburg a couple of years ago because she was so much better than any other waitress I'd ever had wait on me. And then, unfortunately, in one of my conversations, she started telling me in graphic detail about a surgery she'd had. I'm like, no, really, no. Okay, sorry, I missed that one. But there are good people everywhere. Uh I had the owner of a restaurant come up to me. My son is bartending between college classes and says, your son is incredible. Yeah. I want, I want some guy, you know, some great company to come in here and go, wow, you're awesome. I want to hire you. Um, and that happens. Spend more time in the community and look hard because you're right. And the, 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 thrust, of your, the crux of your question or the thrust of your question is right. People are the building blocks of greatness. Okay. This is from Roger. Is loyalty as misguided the notion of the workplace is fairness? No, it's not. It's not. And, and, and look, to be clear, fairness is good in a lot of ways at work, just not when it takes on the meaning, and it's not, by the way, the meaning of fairness, the meaning of everybody gets equal treatment in all things at all time. That's not fairness. Okay? And, and work is not uh, inherently designed to be perfectly fair. Fairness is for board games and rules and so on. I hate to say it. Look, I, I like loyalty, but, but this, what you're asking about is not a matter of loyalty. My recommendation is to get your resume ready. Reach out to your network. 
There's a cast we've done in the past couple of years about looking versus searching. Um, I'm pretty sure about that. Decide where you want to go. Reach out to the right people. Uh, my guess is, based on what you wrote, that you have a really good network that, you're, that people respect you. Decide where you want to go and then go. Yeah, loyalty is not blindness. There are places where loyalty does mean what others would call incredible subservience. I worked there once. Right? Loyalty means when I do something wrong, you have to support me. Well, loyalty starts bumping up against ethics. And, and there's a personal ethic which says, am I serving mankind, humankind, as best I can? And um, you don't have to be ambitious to say, I believe there's a better place for me to serve the world. Um, and, and it's not necessarily reciprocal, but professional loyalty does not demand your abasement as an individual. 14 years is enough. And I tell people all the time, I want to be loyal to an organization who deserves it, and I will be, and you'll get everything I got. And the moment I leave, because for whatever reason, I don't feel it's a fair relationship anymore, I don't feel it's a good relationship anymore, I can say, you got the better end of the deal. I gave you 14 years of my best. Um, that's my recommendation. Next question from Mark uh, about scouting. By the way, thanks, Mark, for the kind words. We're glad we're helping you. And I've talked to my very good friend, Michael Swinson, about Boy Scouts. I used to be a Boy Scout. But sorry, we're not in the business of getting you in trouble with your organization, so you cannot do one-on-ones at Boy Scouts of America. They've outlawed them. Hypothetically, you could do them if you did them in a big room and you were in one corner with a scout or a scout, assistant scoutmaster, and there was another person way in the other corner of the room. I mean, hypothetically, that's technically just a normal one-on-one in a, in a busy, fast-paced environment where people can't overhear. I find that to be um, dangerous because the person could, could forget and walk out, and then you're in a difficult situation. I think the rule is stupid. Mike Swenson tells me there's good reasons for it. And I said, just because there's good reason doesn't mean it's not stupid. Um, because I believe the rule is to protect boys from predatory men and to protect good men from boys who are willing to rat on them uh, untruthfully and, and also to reduce legal risks. Um, and in my mind, that's about as smart as saving a billion dollars, spending a billion dollars to save a penny, I think. There's no rule set in organizational policy and procedure that can protect any individual from any other individual. Um, now, guys, just to be clear, I, I'm, I'm pro Boy Scouts. I'm a scout. I was a scout. Mike was an Eagle Scout. Two of my brothers were Eagle Scouts. And I have reviewed the relevant portion of the Guide to Safe Scouting, which says one-on-one contact between adults and scouts prohibited. One-on-one contact between adults and youth members is not permitted. In situations that require personal conferences, such as Scoutmasters Conference, the meetings will be conducted in view of other adults and youths. Adults and youths. If you're a Brooklynite in Alabama, youths. So, no, you can't do them. No one-on-ones there. No tricky way to make them happen. Just don't do it. There are a lot of other ways to build relationships. Do your best. Sorry. Well, I hated that answer. Okay. Ryan, should I tailor my written communications? No. When you're broadcasting to a group, Ryan, just use your own style. There are a couple of caveats. If it's an important note, which you're going to draft to get right, announcing something or broadcast a, a distro that's particularly important. There's nothing wrong with reviewing it to see if it has something for everybody in the mix. A little D, little I, little S, little C. Uh, also, answer folks in their own language. If somebody responds back to you, obviously now we're talking to an individual. Uh, and if you're answering an individual but if you're copying other people, you answer the individual in their language. And uh, this is related, but not really please be careful about trying not to just forward stuff on from your boss. You know, I hate that. If it's a distro going to your whole team, you don't need to customize it, but please add value to it by saying, here's what this means for us. Um, that's not a disc comment, but I just got something like this the other day without any context, and it pissed me off. So I thought I'd give you a bonus. Like, okay, I've got this distro, and somebody sent me a note saying, FYI. Really? How? How is it FYI? Help people. Help people learn what you want them to know. Don't just say what you want to say. Okay, next one, number nine. Uh, slide nine, Robert. Length of time I wish to stay in the position I'm interviewing for. 
well, finally somebody's willing to admit that they've not gotten jobs because they interviewed saying really, really dumb things. Well done, Robert. Dude, you are not sending a vibe here um, when you say, uh, what was it? I may not be the right candidate for you. It says, uh, um, you're pissing them off, dude. You can't, you can't do that. That's not a vibe. So what you say is, I want to stay in the position as long as I can deliver value best to the firm in that role. I hope I can show that I can do more, but I leave that decision to the firm. Okay? If there's a point at which I can deliver more value in a different or bigger role, I'd expect to have a shot at it, but not until I've shown you I can be highly effective in this one, however long that takes in the eyes of the firm. That's pretty simple. You're saying, I want to do this job well. We'll worry about other jobs later. I have to earn that. But then I have to ask, why are they asking this? What have you said in advance that causes them to wonder this? Surely you're not talking about your career in an interview, right? You're, you're interviewing for a job. The fact that you hope to start a career is separate from the fact that everyone there, save at the very best companies, are interviewing you for that job. They're fearful you can't do the job. They'd much rather hire you for the job if you're right for it and then discover you're not right for the promotion than fear, oh, my God, the guy's great for promotion, but he can't do the job, so it won't matter. He'll never get it. He'll never get the promotion. So focus on getting the job. The decision about the company you're joining or the career you'll have there at that company is for preparation beforehand or for questions after you're offered, like I talked about earlier. I've never, ever been asked how long I wish to stay in the position I'm interviewing for. And it's a stupid question because you oughtn't know the answer because it changes depending upon supply and demand in the role and the market and the, the company's pro productivity and profitability and so on. So I'm only guessing. I could be wrong, Robert. I totally could be wrong that they're asking because you're sending a message that this is just a way station on, the, on your way to loyalty, uh, on your way to royalty, which is a very bad vibe to be sending. And, again, it's not just a vibe. You're pissing them off. So stop it. Okay, Glenn, what are you supposed to do next? This, <laughs> this reminded me of Danny when she first became a manager, and I interviewed, she called me and said, what do I do? I said, what do you do one-on-one? And she asked me, how long do I continue them? I just this long pause, like forever. <laughs> um, so five-a-day bits of feedback is enough. Don't set a goal of more than five. Five is enough. You have other stuff to do. There's nothing wrong with more than five bits of feedback in a day, but a goal of five doesn't preclude you giving more than five, okay? As long as over the long haul you're not particularly favoring anyone with the amount of feedback you're giving any one person, roughly it's equal. Uh, you don't have any spikes or any, any deep holes that you're not giving or giving too much, then you're probably fine. Um, so goal of five, some days you'll give more, some days you'll give less, that's okay. Um, and hopefully you'll get better and better and better at it, and people will respond more and more and more. And so you don't actually have to give any more feedback. You just get better results from each feedback you give. And we have a cast about tailoring your feedback, too, that's worth, that's worth reviewing. And, and by the way, be careful of touting your director title. Usually that's reserved for managers of managers. Um, so uh, companies have done this in the last 20 years. It used to be if you were a director, oh, 150 years ago, the only people who were directors were board members, and then directors became managers of managers. And now, to make people feel better, we call frontline managers directors just to make it easy for their, their titles to take them somewhere else, which is kind of stupid because companies wouldn't want you to go somewhere else. But anyway, so be careful about using that title too much. Okay, next question from Helmine. How do I make a new form team into a team? Uh, as opposed to a bunch of individuals. Um, look, I'm, I'm usually not the person to ask about teams because it's a really nebulous term, kind of gaseous. <laughs> team is really, as far as I can tell in people's uses, as much about how people feel about their association and less about the results that association creates. So generically, I rarely recommend trying to create a team in the same way that I don't say, in the same way that I don't tell people, create a culture. Even though I just read a great book called Leading with Honor by Lee Ellis about leading, and he talks about culture being really important, and I agree with him, but only because he backs into it. Um, and, and look, the, the issue is 
what would these people do that would cause them to become a team in your mind? Don't tell me it's how they feel because you couldn't know how they feel unless they did something that caused you to go, ah, that's team behavior. Um, focus on the behaviors. And it's going to be hard. I mean, it's definitely going to be hard because they're spread apart. Okay? Please do listen to our cast about virtual teams and managing distant directs. I know you. Um, everybody tells me they don't have any budget, so you probably don't. But there are suggestions in there that are worth considering. And let me suggest, let me, let me take a different tack now, suggest something better. Let's create a group of directs who achieve results. Let's manage them to achieve results. That's what we ought to be doing anyway. And then let their results, the significance of their results, the noteworthiness of their results to other people in the organization, bind them together with pride such that other people will call you a team. I, I made the mistake. I, when, I asked Wendy how she was one day, and she said, fine. She says, how are you? I said, I'm lovely. And she says, oh, no, no, it's, it's a British term. It, one cannot call themselves lovely. It's just not. You, you can say that the flowers are lovely or the day was lovely or work was lovely today, but you can't say, say yourself lovely. I, I felt stupid, but I do that a lot. Um, and I would like to suggest that we all not, not, ought not to try to create a team and say we're a team. Usually when people say that, it's like some dictatorial boss that everybody rolls their eyes at. I'm not saying you are that person, I mean. I'm just saying, let's let other people say that team is good. Let's have the outsiders go, I want to join them because they feel like a team. But, you know, have you ever met a team? It's an awesome team. Everybody does really, we love, they're great. And they have crappy results? No. So go after results. And then let them back into team. And, by the way, when they do good and they start getting pride, prideful a little bit, I know pride's bad, but everybody feels a little bit because they're human. Wow, it's awesome. And, and that means for you, better relationship with those construction managers, I mean, uh, and we have a great podcast on eternal customer support, right? Jump starting, I think, is what it's called. Um, and you need clarity for your for your people about deliverables, and then measures about those deliverables, and then reporting on those measurables about deliverables, and feedback on all those things. And gradually, people will change, and then people will say, "Well, we're doing good," and post the numbers and say, "Look, we're getting better." That's what I would do. Martin, 30, 60, 90 day plan. First rule, I see this more and more nowadays. I think a lot of people are getting hired. I think the market's warming up, and I think, uh, um, I think people are starting to say, okay, I, want to, I get a new job. What do I do? And, and guys, I'm going, to, I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to say the rule is go slow. Um, you, you, the question you ask is get himself engaged and productive quickly when coming into a newly created job. Your word quickly really, really worries me, okay? Um, the problem with making an impact is that you don't have much credibility yet. In the beginning, all you have is role power, not relationship power. You look, you may have some expertise power, but it's unlikely. You could, but it's not really very leverageable. The problem is when a new manager or an executive comes in, everybody's on alert. They're very likely to comply with your initiatives, but long-run success always comes from commitment and not compliance. Commitment energy comes from relationship power, while compliance energy comes from your role power. If you use your role power early, you're going to get some, you're going to get some results. But probably what you're going to see is activity that you're going to confuse as accomplishment, and it's going to be activity based on compliance. And if you're not right a lot, you end up trading the relationship you're trying to build and the commitment that comes from it later for compliance now. In other words, you steal from future commitment energy by demanding compliance energy now. And that means that when you need them to carry the water later, they won't do it. And your boss will say to you, well, I, I did say, you're right, I have to admit, Martin, you did say that, uh, I did say that you should come in and stir things up and you really should make a difference. I did say that. But I thought you surely knew I didn't mean to do it so much that everyone come to me asking for your head. And that's, that's what stupid bosses do when they mistakenly tell people, come in and stir things up. Yeah, that's it. So we go slow. First 30 days, find out what the key drivers of the job are. Meet with your boss each week. Ask for an hour or two or more each week. Somewhere here, I've got a list of 20 questions, things like, when is budget season, and what's my, where's my budget, what's the history of each of my directs, and we're going to do a cast on that, okay? 
Next, start building relationships with peers and executives. Ask for time. Use the internal customer relationships task. Modify it if you're talking to an internal non-customer. Yeah, sure, you can do one-on-ones. And obviously, there's a parallel there, right? Relationships first. No feedback to your directs for three months. That's your model. Go slow. Said by the guy who, is the, who, who has the hardest time on the planet for going slow. And I actually learned it the hard way, and now that's the way I do things. Go slow. By the way, small company, big company, doesn't matter. Okay, next question from Isaac. How in the feedback model do we allow discussion? Um, well, um, by the way, there's more to this question, folks. It was a whole Word document I had to read. It's a good question. And the question is, how in the feedback model do we allow discussion? Well, <laughs> those, those of you who have been listening for a while, my, thought, my first thought when I read this question was, we? Why would we want to make my model less one-sided? It only took us 20 years to get here. The answer to your question is, you don't make the model less one-sided. And I'll just be very honest. I'm really a nice person. If you don't like the model, don't use it. If you want to do feedback differently, that's okay. Just don't call it our model. I promise you, folks, if, sooner or later, if you make every negative, by the way, this is obviously, it's funny, this question is so biased toward negativeness. It doesn't even hint that feedback could be positive. But okay, I'll, I'll forgive that. Sooner or later, if you make every negative feedback a discussion, one or both of two things will be true. You'll do less feedback and or you'll get less good results. We, guys, we tried it this way years ago, and we discovered it didn't work because managers didn't want to have the discussion. Okay? And we worked through that to a better design. Look, think about it. Guys, in, in the world, first there was anarchy, and then there were kings. Actually, first there were warlords, and then there were kings. Then there were benevolent kings. Then there were parliamentary kingdoms. Then there were aristocratic parliaments. Then there were representative democracies. Each was better than the one before, but even in anarchy, somebody benefited and resisted the change to the next level, and you couldn't even have a conversation with those in anarchy about representative republics today. Um, so the model is the model because it works and because we've tried everything else. It's designed to be one-sided. I don't want to make it less one-sided. You never will as long as I'm alive and call it manager tools because this conversation is not between two equals. We're not discussing your performance. We cannot make true what is fundamentally untrue. Well, we're both human beings, and we are, and I respect the other person if you're my direct. We are only interacting in this way because I am your boss and you are my direct. The manager tools feedback model is only for bosses and directs. We might as well be arguing here about what, one, how one-sided childbirth is and how might we share the, some of the pain that the, that the mother goes through with the father, right? It doesn't make any sense. The empty feedback model has no place for discussion because, first, it's just feedback. It's not judgment of another person. When you stub your toe, the curb gives you feedback. It's not a conversation. B, it's just feedback. It's neither positive or negative. Your example, being only negative, misses the point that feedback is not judgment of the past mistake. It's not, which is what causes directs to want to defend themselves. Directs defend themselves when they believe they're being judged harshly. Okay? We're not. That's not the point of feedback. Feedback has nothing to do with what already happened. It's not about what happened. It's about the future. All most of us need to know is that regardless of why we did something, it either turned out right or wrong. The rationales for doing things are always reasonable. When was the last time anybody listening to this call did something without reason or without care or intentionally for it to turn out wrong? No, you don't do that. It's no wonder that in the beginning, when directs first learn about the model, they want to say why they did something when they're given negative feedback. They were right. They intended to do something right. But the problem with that is that rightness is not the issue. The problem is the were. They were right. The fact that they were right about something they did this morning doesn't matter if it turned out wrong. Uh, look, I don't want to convince you for negative feedback about the rightness or wrongness of, of your intent. I can't. And who cares? Right intent and wrong outcomes 
will drive us out of business as fast as wrong intent and wrong outcomes. The only thing that matters is the outcome. That's how it is for your firm. If your company makes a crappy product with all the best intention, and which company makes crappy products with bad intentions, if you make a crappy product with good intentions, your CEO, when it doesn't sell, is not going to go have a, uh, a conference call and say, you guys need to send us some money, all you customers, because we meant well. You can't do that. It's not a discussion. And frankly, I'll tell you something else, my final point. Managers are scared to death of discussions. 90% of the managers in the world give almost no feedback. When you ask them why, 90% of them say, I know we're going to get into a big discussion. You don't have time to have big discussions. And by the way, you'll be having big discussions with the people who you give the most negative feedback to who are the most want to discuss it because they're the most defensive, because they want to put their energy in defending what they're doing rather than improving their performance. You say you'd be pretty peeved if your manager disengaged when you try to explain what you did. I would ask, how would you reply if your manager said, well, what you, made, what you did made sense. I can see why you did it. And that outcome isn't what we need. Do you feel better? I would argue that allowing the direct to feel better increases the chances they'll hold on to that old rationale, which got bad results. And I know this makes me terribly wrong and bad and everything else, but that's just a veneer and you don't... It's not really true. Frankly, I don't want you to feel better. I want you to produce results. You seem to suggest here that what the direct wants is as valuable as what the manager wants, and I'm really sorry, but in the economics of organizational life, it's not. I love my directs. I love them more than I love myself, and when they make a mistake, I'm obligated to point it out. I'm not obligated to have a conversation with them. The marketplace is obligated to point things out when the company makes a mistake. The internal organizations of the company have to mimic the external world to some degree. The marketplace doesn't have to point out why we you know, have a conversation with us. They just have to not buy our stuff. So come up with a better model. I encourage you to and put us out of business. <laughs> just kidding. Next question is from Harold. How do you convince your boss to promise me to employ Eugene Manager? Okay. This is really about uh, – uh, uh, I, I got more information on, on this from, from Harold himself. And, and uh, uh, this, in this particular case, the safety manager is aware, based on GPS on a company vehicle, that the person is, um, is driving the car when they're not supposed to, driving the truck or the company vehicle when they're not supposed to. So that's easy. If you're the safety person, you go and you present the data directly to the person and say, listen, I'm really sorry. I, feel bad to have to tell you this. I don't know if you know it, but we have data, and you're driving the car when you shouldn't be. And it's unsafe, and it's, it's, it's against the – I just want to tell you you're violating a policy, and I would ask you to stop and, and say, look, I, I'm obligated to look at this stuff periodically, um, and uh, I hope you stop. And remember, you can't order it, and hopefully you build a relationship with this person. But if you haven't, you still are obligated to tell them. And then if they don't change, obviously you can still look at the GPS data. If they don't change, then you've got to talk to their boss. And if their boss is the president of the company, then you talk to the president of the company. Uh, and you say, look, I'm really sorry. I, I asked him to do it. I showed him the data. I showed him that it was clear that they were driving at night and so on. And I asked them to change politely, and they didn't. And um, clearly I don't have the influence I should have, and so I'm asking you to get involved. And it's probably not going to be that simple, but that's what you do. And it's way easier to do that when you have great relationships across the organization. And I also want to say something else. Probably one of the most misunderstood roles in organizations today is safety people. 80% of that is the rest of us misjudging safety. Safety has all kinds of opportunities for success in organizations. And 20% of it is safety people acting as if it's black and white, it's right and wrong, and I'm the safety guy, and you have to do it this way because safety is job one and so on. And I've learned the best safety people in the world are really smart about safety, but they also have fabulous relationships. And because they have relationships, people listen, and when they're asked, why is your safety guy so good, they say, it's because he's so smart. When, in fact, great safety officers really get listened to, not because they're smart, but because they have great relationships. And that's the leverage, Harold, long term. And if I've given you too short an answer and you want more, just you've got my email. Send me an email. Next question, Carrie. Um, is it a good idea to demote an individual? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, now, look, I'm going to assume a lot with your use of the word endless here, Carrie, uh, um, endless feedback and coaching. But for the record, endless to me means six months of them knowing because you told them so 
they were in danger of losing their job if their performance didn't change. If you don't meet that standard, you better be close to it before I would say, yeah, that's endless. Okay? That said, if that's true, endless, I think demotion is a far better way to handle situations like this in principle. There's a cost to the organization of hiring regardless of the role. In principle, in the abstract, all things being equal, which they never are, demotion ought to be the first choice for a failing performance. Why sacrifice all that institutional memory? Why is it only up or out? Guys, you know why it's only up or out? Because all the big organizations in the world model themselves about the o- after the only organizations that were bigger than them 150 years ago when big organizations started getting formed. And that was the world's military, which always had an up or out policy, in part because people died in wars. Stupid, but it's true. Now, I'm not saying that demotion would work in your organization, Charity. It might not. It won't work in a lot of organizations. And if you ask around, everyone will surely tell you it won't work here. But I would encourage you to just think again about it. If you can do it, it might take some pre-wiring of the right people. If you don't know what pre-wiring is, look for a podcast on pre-wire. Okay? It is, of course, possible that the direct wouldn't consider it, though usually that would be a form of pride. And sometimes people must, you know, we recommend they would discard that. I've done this. It works. Um, and I would include part of the pre-wiring, your direct, and say, you know, it's not working out. Could you think about a different role, a lesser role? Now, I'm not suggesting, when I say demotion, I'm not suggesting putting them somewhere else, okay? Or if you're going to send them somewhere else that would be a demotion, that's more aligned with their skills, you owe it to their boss to give them chapter and verse on what this person did and did not do. And the boss gets to hire them or not hire them. But if you're demoting them within your own organization and you believe they'd be good in the next role, you then, and you think you can do it, do it. And then talk to people and say, Nobody better be giving her crap or him crap about what they did. This is an important part of the organization. That job didn't work out. I like them. I want to keep them. I do it. I've done it. It works. Okay, 16. Huh. Gee, small question. This question reminded me of the philosophy exam question. Define the universe. Be specific. Give two examples. <laughs> I don't know that I have a good answer to this question, honestly, Ken. Uh, I don't think any answer I could give would work for everybody. Most of you expect me to be right a lot, and there's really no universal right answer here. Telling a 20-year-old to trust their gut is kind of iffy, while not telling a 50-year-old to, to trust his or her gut is also iffy. For me, questions about gut or instinct really miss the point. All that really matters is whatever you choose, are you willing to be wrong and suffer the consequences? And that's ideally done with the understanding of the consequences of process. Think about this now. Consequences of process, like numbers versus gut, are often asymmetrical. Wrong gut choices get punished more now and externally because people can see the numbers that you ignored and have proof you were wrong, and they can't see your belief, and so you get punished by the organization. Wrong numbers choices, right, where you stick with the numbers, but you have defensibility, right, get punished later and internally. You aren't punished now because, because you followed the numbers, but later your failure is a regret, which is one of the saddest sounds I know. You're going to say, I followed the numbers, it turned out wrong, but everybody else said, it was okay because the numbers suggested you should have done that, when in fact your gut said, Maybe you should do this other thing. Those are the ones that hurt, in my opinion. But most people, the things that hurt is talking about, well, I might lose my job for going with my gut. So let's first agree that the unspoken but undeniable assumption of your question is that numbers in the gut you refer to don't agree, right? So let's let's at least say out loud here that when they do agree, do what they tell you and, and be thou at peace as the cadet prayer goes. Now you ask, what do I do? And a lot of you aren't going to like my answer. I apologize for that. Um, I can only say that in a big question, it's either better answered with something bordering on an aphorism or with a request for a more specific question. I reserve the right here to say that my heuristic that I'm about to share is a rule. It's just a rule of thumb. It's going to break down in, in many instances. Were I wrong in a particular situation, I would defend my heuristic by saying, yes, you're right, and my heuristic might well fail me there, and I wish I weren't human. Um, so my answer is when my gut and the numbers don't agree, I check the numbers. If they're correct, not right, but correct, 
then I am left on the horns of dilemma, and then I trust my gut every time and always, always, always do so until the numbers tell me the consequences are going to affect others over whom I have less influence than necessary to encourage them to be wrong with me and suffer the consequences. Now, I'm weird, guys. I'm not normal. I gave up a promising career in the Army. I gave up a promising career at Procter & Gamble. I went to a smaller company, then I got fired. Um, and and I'm doing this, and this is not the way to be successful, that's for sure. But I put my head on my pillow every night. Um, to say it differently, I don't draw a line. I, I, I don't believe in staying true to numbers. Okay, I know that sounds corny, but I stay true to God and my country, my family, and my firm. Look, I believe numbers. I just believe in me more than I believe in the numbers. And Mike is rolling his eyes right now. If the numbers are money and they say we can't be in business, well, that's going to affect other people. And I might change my plans if I can live in the change um, and stay in business. But I would rather go out of business believing what I believe. And remember, we lived this in the beginning. Remember that about manager tools. I'd rather do that than stay in business and become somebody I'm not proud of. I may not be completely right, but I'm at peace that, that – that I give the world far, far more than I get, and that's what I believe I'm supposed to do. That's just what I think. That's what God commands me to do, give more than you get. That's love. Uh, I'm sure, guys, that that's why some people don't like me. Uh, I know I have the arrogance of a true believer. I'm wrong sometimes, a lot, maybe. Uh, and maybe that's just the story I tell myself. Um, but I think that's what it takes to say I'm going to change the world. Uh, or, you know, Garth Brooks said, what I do is so the world will know it won't change me. I remember what Shakespeare said, whatever you do to thine own, to thine own, uh, to thine own self be true. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> okay, Peter asks, ideas on how to manage an interesting situation. Um, Peter, you're in a statistically st tough spot. Most owners, that's code for 99.9%, say they want to they wanna not be in charge but it's harder for them than they realize and they make a mess of things. Um, but I believe in you, and I'll try to keep helping. You need some things. You need agreement about that you need time to fit in. Don't go fast. We already talked about that earlier tonight. Um, they have friends there, the owners, and if their friends hate you, you lose. Tell them, I'm a professional, and I know that everything I do quickly will be seen as interloping. I want to get to know everybody and fit in and learn, learn, learn. Professional managers and executives do not go fast, guys. That's what you should tell them. We know that the people we irritate early won't carry our water later. We want the changes we make to last. The biggest failing of guys in this role is too fast, seen as too rough, gone too soon. I'd rather not burden the next guy you hire with that, because if I fail because I go too fast, there will be a next guy, and you'll tell him, go slow. You need full financial disclosure now. Maybe you already got it. Hopefully you already did. If there are other companies which say control and which are tied to this one, you're entitled. If they really, truly believe that you are running things, you're entitled to see every shilling, pound, and pence, period. If you don't understand it and there's no shame in not to, sit down with the accountant and learn it. You need early weekly meetings with the directors, directors uh, as directors, by the way, not as individual contributors, followed by maybe moving that to monthly. Follow that with quarterly reports. You must get good at reporting documents in advance, prepared, pre-wire everything, pre-wire everything, pre-wire everything. Never go into a board meeting without having counted votes. Never ask a question of a director, even if they are in a meeting as an individual contributor. Never ask a, a question of a director in front of other people where there's even a hint of a larger context without having told them the question they're going to ask, you're going to ask in advance and knowing what their answer is going to be. This is a polite way of giving you an example to not embarrass your board. One-on-ones with the appropriate folks initially in your managerial role over time. Push for everybody in the organization who's a manager doing them. Does that sound familiar? Rolling down and rolling out the trinity. After six months, sit down and think about the structure of the company. Then broach it at a board meeting, get approval, and then come up with a rollout plan after that meeting. Then present the rollout plan and get approval for that, and then roll out the structural changes. Number seven, assume everything will be leaked. Don't ask for confidentiality, or if you feel compelled to, only ask once and never again. Either they will or they won't. The fact that they shouldn't leak stuff 
is given a lie by the fact that they don't want to be board members. They want to be highly paid individual contributors. Don't think them disloyal because they tell their friends it's their company. That's good enough. Good luck, Peter. Derek, does this apply to interview situations? Yes, it can. And yes, more energy with a high C is still good. Most of the people who interview are not high eyes, though it does vary by industry. The problem is not one of tailoring, but rather of fit here. Every manager wants folks who have energy. Every manager. They're not seeing the real you. They're projecting you into the job. They can't make you do the job for free for 90 days to find out, so they overemphasize the intangibles, which is one of the most important things about intangible is energy level. Further, our guidance on energy level is based on a lot of history of interviewing. Well, Wendy and I can tell you stories that would curl your toes. The average interviewee is quiet, reserved, and impossible to talk with. They're talking about getting a new job, and by the way, thinking that they're going to want to bump up the salary you're going to offer in a bit, thank you very much, while sitting quietly and answering questions poorly and somewhat matter-of-factly and are generally unprepared and hesitant and defensive because they know their weaknesses and they're afraid you're going to ask them about them. It's a wonder anyone who isn't astoundingly good gets hired. And we think preparation is the big issue there. Now, do you need to be an off-the-charts high eye to get a job? No, but even if you think you're being off-the-charts, you won't be anywhere near that. Most folks' definition of high eye behavior, particularly if you're IC, is saying awesome once and smiling twice. And it's a big spike in energy in the first two minutes, followed by a long, slow decline to misery, followed by, ooh, we're two minutes from the end. I better pop it up a little bit. You're measuring your energy level based on your discomfort with being energetic. We're telling you to push for high eye-like behaviors because you can't get there, or even if you can, you can't sustain it for 45 minutes anyway. It won't be a problem. I've never ruled somebody out because of high energy. Even reserve guys want energy, Derek. Maybe not as much as high eyes would, but enough that a high C better amp it up in the interview. And, and, and the only way you can be amped up is to be so prepared, you don't have to think about your answer, and you can think about your energy level. Okay, I'm hurrying here. Dimitri, how can I solicit feedback from my bosses who aren't used to giving it? Ask politely and periodically, Dimitri. Things like, hey, if there's ever anything I can do better, I would love to hear it. Or, would you please be candid with me whenever something can be improved? Or... It would mean a lot to me to hear from you areas where you believe I can improve or even areas I'm doing well in. Thanks so much. If I do something wrong, please tell me. By the way, all of those apply to different disk profiles. I'll let you figure it out yourself. Provide monthly updates of your performance. If it's just a document, Dimitri, ask for guidance or comments in the email. If it's a meeting, ask as I mentioned above. Write your own quarterly review. Ask for feedback on it. Provide drafts of documents, plans, policies, procedures, presentation, presentations you're going to give, and ask for input. Hey, anything you want to share? Anything I can do better here? You may not get much, but you may get something. And if you don't get anything, it's like, okay, I'm not going to get anything, and I'm kind of screwed, and okay. Then at least you'll know. All right, two more questions. Collins, I work in the IT uh, I plan on applying for a soon-to-be newly created PMO position. Um, uh, should I use a three- to five-minute long explanation for senior competent? Yes, you should use a three- to five-minute answer format. Two reasons. Most people haven't heard it, Collins, and when they do, they love it. They hate the one-minute answer, even though that's the average, or otherwise put, poor answer. They have to begin asking follow-up questions immediately, and they haven't studied your resume to know what to expect. If they're a high D, oh, my gosh. They'd rather just listen. And if they want to interrupt, they will. And here's the thing that people miss about our three to five minute long explanation of significant accomplishments. It doesn't seem that long of an answer because you've given it structure in advance by describing it's going to have three parts. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. It unfolds in one to two minute long bits. Totally listenable. In honor of Dick Clark, the guy who hosted American Bandstand, who rested in peace this week, it's got a beat and you can dance to it. Yeah. Um, should you inform your current manager? You know, I, I, generally my rule is yes, but it depends on your boss, dude. It totally depends on your boss. Um, would I? Yeah, I would, because he's going to find out about it sooner or later, unless there's some confidentiality. If you don't think I have that right, Collins, send me another note about the second one, about why you wouldn't tell your current manager. Last question. 
Dave says, yeah, I have 40 direct reports. What is the latest guidance on conducting one-on-ones that many? It, it, of course, I don't have one-on-one guidance here, Dave. It's structural guidance for a really bad organizational problem. Okay. But that said, uh, dude, I'm assuming that every one of your directs works full-time and all are equally engaged and involved in your mission. And I'm also assuming, before I give you my answer, now I, you know, that you mean there's no one between you and any of these directs. All 40 of them report directly to you. There's no team leads. There's no in-between in, in folks. There's no managers or supervisors. Uh, that you understand that you are each of these 40 folks' bosses. There are no intervening managers. That you write their reviews. That they think of you as their direct boss in all cases. Um, all those things assumed. I'd have to say have one-on-ones every three weeks. That's 13, 13 a week, 6.5 hours a week. And they won't be great, but they'd have better than nothing, and it won't be their fault. And I, there's no amount of automation or handwriting recognition software or tablets that will get you there. Relationships don't get better with automation. Slightly, but not enough. You can't solve this problem with automation or handwriting recognition software or tablets. Sorry, you can't. All right, I know we're out of time. Danny, did we get any questions? Yes, we did. Okay. Can we Got keep one. going? When you, when, can, can we keep going? Are, am I going to get in trouble? <laughs> Only that we're breaking our rules about finishing on time. So if, awesome. Since you're the guy who invented it, we can break it. Yeah, we're breaking it. If you guys need to go, we respect that and we apologize. But I did get through all of them. It, my clock said 8 o'clock. As soon as I finished Dave's answer, and then it clicked to 801. So we did finish. And that's a lot of questions. Some of them were long. So if you can stay, stay. We'll consider this open Q&A. Okay. So what were the questions, Danny? Okay. So one was the person was asking for how do you answer the variation on or a variation on the question, where do you see yourself in five years? Oh, it's the same thing. It's a stupid question. Look, guys, this is a stupid question, okay? The answer to the question, where do you see yourself in five years? And I guess we need a podcast on this, don't we, Wendy? Um, I thought we had one. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, anyway, yeah, it's an interview series. But, but look, uh, it's easy. I expect to be in a place that uses my talents best to the benefit of the organization. Far be it from me to know where my career will go based on what the future of the company and the industry and the, and the marketplace tell us. I believe I'll be in a place that my skills will best be used. It may be in this role, although I hope I can prove myself to do more, and yet I leave that to you uh, um, based on my performance and the needs of the organization, period. Anybody who tells you you need to have a clear goal with a job title is an idiot because job titles change so much and the industry's changed so much. It's crazy. Okay. Okay. We got one other question. Can you suggest how to repair a relationship with a senior executive when, I think this is supposed to say, when I don't know what caused the relationship to sour? Should I ask him? Oh, boy, that's a subtle one. It depends depends on where they are in the chain and where you are and so on. Um, I'm assuming, well, first of all, don't assume you have a sour relationship with a senior executive unless there has been proactive communication thereof. I mean, look, I know people who were in my organization who says, you don't like me. I said, you know, in my head I was thinking, I don't even know who you are. Um, and, and apparently it was because they had made a couple of suggestions that had gotten to me, and I said, no, we're not doing that because of this. And I'm like, well, okay, you can't. You, you, I mean, gee whiz. You, um, most people overestimate the negative things executives uh, hint toward them and underestimate the positive things. Um, would I go talk to an executive? I might. It would depend. Send me an email. Um, uh, Wendy, what's our, what's our email address? for? Is it customer service for Fogbugs? Yeah, customer service at manager-tools.com. It really depends. But generally, I, would, I know I would tell you I would. Remember, guys, manager tools is not about what I would do, um, and it depends. I think for the average person, I would lean towards saying, yeah, um, sure, I could, uh, I could see you going up and saying, look, I feel like I damaged our relationship. Now, if you don't know what, it, what you did, that's a little bit harder. You might want to ask around. It depends on what kind of relationships you have with other people, whether or not they know. Um, but I would, I would ask you to check and be able in your email, if you're going to send me one, to describe the very specific behaviors, not characterizations, but behaviors that this executive engaged in that caused you to believe that the relationship is bad. Uh, you may just be in the wrong group 
that is getting less budget because you're not the right place to be investing in now. Don't take that personally. And I know that's not a complete answer, and I apologize. It just depends on, on who you are and who this person is and how much more senior they are and how big the company is and several other things. As a general rule, though, I wouldn't say absolutely not um, unless what you told me was he actually told me, I hate your guts, in which case I would say leave him alone um, or, or some variation of that that would be clear and concise. Um, you suck. Okay, that's different. I'm not going to I'm not going to walk you into the lion's den. That's not a good idea. Is that it? No, that's it. No other questions. Folks, thanks for joining us. Sorry we ran five minutes over, but we did finish by eight o'clock. It was Central Time. Uh, it's a privilege to do this for you. Uh, we feel very lucky to be doing it. Um, I'm I'm honored that so many of you join um, and listen. Uh, we'll try to make them more interactive. Maybe we could go 90 minutes. Uh, maybe people could, I, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe we'd cut off after after 15 questions or 10 questions so we could take follow-ups. But but we like getting the questions. It does take me a lot of time to prepare, but it's worth it, and I'm I'm glad to help. And I believe there'll be a recording of this put up somewhere, Wendy. Is that right? Yep, I'll send out the details in the morning. Good. Thanks, all. Be safe. Take care of yourselves. It's a privilege. Ladies and gentlemen, this will conclude our conference. Thank you for joining us this evening. Goodbye.